Hi, my name is Mary Spender and welcome to Series 2, Episode 4 of Chuste Talks. This series will consist of 10 interviews in total with some of my favourite musicians. Thank you so much for downloading and listening to this podcast, wherever you may be. Remember, you can catch the full video interview on my YouTube channel too. This week I chat to Steve Onatera, aka Samurai guitarist, who makes some of the most entertaining and comedic guitar-related videos out there, as well as obviously totally educational, and his channel is full of weird and wonderful gear, which you know I love. Although we hung out at NAMM, we didn't get that much time to catch up, so I took this opportunity to learn more about Steve and hear his insights into being a musician with a huge online presence. This whole series is brought to you by DistroKid, my favourite music distribution service, which gets your music into online stores and streaming platforms, and they've been a huge supporter of this channel and podcast. There is a link in the show notes for you to get 7% off your first year, but let's get into the show. Tuesday. 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 Tuesday talks. How are you doing? I'm doing pretty well. I don't have any tons of complaints. I was uh, on vacation for the last, I was on vacation two weeks ago. So uh, I was in Hawaii catching some sun. And as soon as I got back here, I lost 60 degrees Celsius. So that's been a struggle readjusting to that. But you know, you know what they say? Just hang loose, take it easy. You were in Hawaii. I am so jealous. After, after Nam. Yeah, two weeks in LA, two weeks in Hawaii. And then a tragic plunge of 60 degrees Celsius back home. Two weeks ago, I was surfing and a turtle swam up to me. Right now I'm looking outside and I just see barren trees and snow. But you know what? Life is good. Shouldn't complain. Just the way it is sometimes. Do you think um, Winnipeg residents are probably some of the most creative because of the conditions outside during winter? Okay, so that's an interesting an interesting thing. And I think a lot about this and I have a real love-hate relationship with this city. Um, I think there's an unproportionate amount of really good musicians and talent here, or at least that is, is born here. I think most people end up leaving though, because there's only really so high you can go in the music industry. Um, you hit a point where I think like if you're that talented and that hungry, you want more and to get more, you need to go somewhere else to get more. So I think the bulk of people who, uh, who develop those skills and are hungry and have that drive end up going other places, which is why like when I go to Toronto or when I go to LA, I always bump into Winnipegers. And I think the fact that there's a lot of talented people here comes from the fact that during the winter, you don't have a lot you can do. You, can, you don't really go outside, so you just sit in your room practicing guitar or working on your art or whatever. And because of that, it breeds like a lot of creativity and a lot of talented people, but I don't think most of them stay here. I think it's the exception to find ones that do. Are you happy that you can stay because of a platform like YouTube? Yeah, though moving is like a very much a thing that Jenny and I are always talking about. Like we've had this conversation, we had this conversation last night and I think like the... In the future, we will move. I'm pretty certain of it. What is great is the fact that I can do what I do from the city. And I've been here, I moved back home seven years ago after doing school in Toronto. So I moved back here 
uh, with the idea, like I always was thinking this will be a kind of a layover for the next big thing. I didn't know that YouTube was going to be what I did when I came back. I came back with the idea of, I just wanted to get out of doing session work and get out of doing, uh, building a career, I guess, around being a sideman, which is where things were going when I was living in Toronto. I did my school there, spent a summer there after, and I was doing a lots of, lots of gigs. Um, but I just, I wanted to do something that was for me. I wanted to be an artist. I wanted to have uh, my own baby that I built, my own musical thing. And so I moved back here with the idea that it's a very, I could build something from here without having those overheads of living in a city like Toronto, which is an extremely expensive city to live in. So I moved back here and uh, started doing the YouTube thing. And seven years later, still here. Um, my idea when I first came back was I was going to move back here and uh, develop a, a name for myself, which would allow me to get a visa to move down to Nashville. Um, right? So like my whole thing was I didn't want to be on the road for my entire life. I wanted to have uh, a life where I could live at home and do the things that, 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 that provides, like have a family and, and play on sports teams and just like have a normal life without having to tour all the time in order to pay the bills. And the way I saw that happening originally was, was writing music and just being a writer in Nashville, like a staff writer. Um, and so to get back to your original point, I guess, it is great that YouTube has provided that opportunity for me and the ability to live in a city where there isn't that much of a music scene. Uh, I mean, I don't think there's anyone outside of maybe three or four people who, do, who play music full-time here. Could be wrong on that, but it's not a huge number. Um, and when I say play music full time, I mean like not having to teach or do other side gigs to to pay some of the bills. At least there's under five people who do it comfortably. Is my guess. Again, not 100% sure on that. Don't quote me on that. But uh, the ability to do what I do and live in comfort here and be close to all my family and have all those luxuries of home is something that. I'm able to do in this city. And because of this job, I'm able to do that, which is great. The point of like wanting to move is like, you always want something more. And I feel like I've done, I've got to what I've, the benefits of living here is it allowed me to make very little money and put all my effort into YouTube. And so now that things are, have started rolling, like I've, I've used that benefit as much as it can kind of benefit me. And now I feel like it's time, like I want to get, do bigger things that kind of, need to be done in a, a music center, like a place like LA or Nashville's or the, the, the New York's London's of the world. You know what I mean? I do know what you mean. And it's, it's possibly a little bit strange over here because I grew up outside of London, but only by an hour and a half, maybe a two hour drive, maybe an hour and a half on the train. And now I live an hour away from London, but Obviously, London is one of the biggest music cities in the world as well. Um, and I just can't imagine because I grew up in a small town that didn't it had three probably places that you could gig. Um, and it was a professional music town, though, but classical music because of the cathedral. Um, and that spawned its own sort of culture of um, professional musicians singing there and, and, um, and teaching and, you know, that sort of whole thing. But London was so close. Now I think about it, it was so close, but actually it felt very, very far away when I was a kid because I couldn't really get there, um, without being taken. 
Um, and some of my friends were schooled there on Saturdays and had to go there um, to all the sort of junior conservatoires and stuff. But I, I didn't. I cannot imagine what it is like to... How far is Winnipeg from somewhere like Toronto? Uh, the closest major city, the closest bigger city in Canada is Calgary, which is a 14-hour drive. <laughs> Give or take a couple hours. The close, like Toronto's 30 hours away if you're, if you're driving it. I've done that drive before. It's not 30 hours of driving time, but it ends up being like 30 hours when you have to like go through the, go across the border and stop for gas and stop for food. It's like you set aside, maybe not 30 hours, two solid days of driving. Two, two 12 hour days of driving will get you there. Honestly, English people do not understand. Well, it, you know, British people in general do not understand how fortunate we are just being and how close everything is on this tiny little island that we're in. We're now in um, and with Europe on our doorstep. And we just love to complain about it and we love to complain about the weather. And yet I feel like Canadians are just the kindest, talented, like super talented people. Obviously, I... I know you and then I know the Landreth uh, boys and just I've this this town or the city of Winnipeg has like cropped up, but I've never been there. So I can't sort of like I can't and until I'm in a, a place, I can't really ever picture it, obviously. Um, and I can't sort of see what it's like, but it's so interesting, like hearing how people have grown up. So you were you born and raised in Winnipeg? Yeah, like I lived here until I was 19 and then I moved away for six months to go to Australia, moved back for another three years, went to Toronto for five years, moved back, lived here for seven years, bringing me to my life now. Okay, and did you study guitar? Yep. Cool, so how does that happen? How does that, how did you get <laughs> from being born to studying in Toronto? It's actually kind of, uh, there's a funny little thing in there, which I'll bring up, but basically I knew I always like, as soon as I picked up guitar, like from day one, I wanted to be a professional guitar player. I saw Blink-182 playing all the small things in 1999 on the MTV Music Awards. And I specifically remember watching that. I was like, yeah, that's what I want to do. And for whatever reason, I've just been one of those, had that mentality that whenever I set my mind to something, like I'm just going to do it. Until I'm proven that I can't do it. It's just like that, that thing, that, that seed of doubt that I think sits in a lot of people, like it just doesn't, it doesn't resonate with me. There's a part of me that thinks I could still become a professional hockey player if I wanted to. I know, I know that I couldn't. I'm 32 years old. I'm not very tall. I'm not a great hockey player on my like low level beer league team. But there's like that thing that's like, well, if you put your mind to it, you could do it. Like that's what's the, like the root of these beliefs. And so as soon as I saw Blink-182 play when I was like 13 years old, I'm like, oh yeah, I can do that. And it was just like, I just was going to from, from then on. And so I didn't really have an idea of how I was going to do that for a long period of time. Like I was playing in bands, didn't see how to get to that, like that next level. Um, never really was surrounded by people who had been successful per se in the music industry. Uh, worked at a guitar store and I saw like, you know, a lot of people who were just struggling to, to, to do stuff in music, at least on like a bigger level. Um, fast forward a couple of years, went to school for business. Uh, my first year of university was like business stuff, economics, all the stuff. I hated it. Uh, I, I finished that year and I was like, I don't know what I want to do, but I know that's not it. And so I had a friend 
Um, and he was just going to Australia to do a gap year there. He was just going to go work and, uh, he was a German guy. He was like learning English over there. So I was like, you know what, I'll just go over there and meet you and I'll hang out and just see what happens. And so he was also a guitar player and him and I would just like jam and talk about music all the time. And he was just so excited about music. It like really, really wore off on me and like really, really kind of put that thing into my head where I was like, well, he's going to, he's going to music school next year. I could do the same thing. So I got back, went back to work at the guitar store. And so here's where that funny little thing I mentioned comes in. Uh, Dave Landreth, who was the bass player in the Landreth Brothers, he was running the lesson center at that time. And I used to, when things were, were not busy, I would walk over to the lesson center and just like say hi to him and chat with him. And I remember one day he was talking about, thinking about going to music schools. And he was like this one in Toronto called Humber, seems like one of the coolest ones. Uh, and so I like, I looked more into that and it's kind of, at the time it was the only one that really offered a contemporary degree in Canada, which means you're not studying jazz or classical music only, like you're doing other stuff like working in the studio, working on songwriting. And so I just read about that. And I was like, okay, that's where I want to go. Um, I never applied to any other ones. I just applied to that one. And uh, I didn't get accepted into the program I wanted to go in at first. Uh, I got accepted into this like preparatory year. So I went over there for a year and did what was called like the introductory program where they like give you like a major crash course and honing your jazz skills because a lot of it was still very much based off of your first two years. You've got to be a good jazz player. And then you got to branch out and do the more contemporary stuff. So I did that year there um, doing like the preparatory thing. And then I got into the degree next year, did my four years there. And yeah, that's it. There are two incredible things in that Um other than well, so the the two things I absolutely love is one that you you don't listen to doubt if there if there is even an inkling of it you just don't listen to it and you don't let it rule your life because like I think we have a little bit in common with that where it's if you want to do something you just have to get on and do it no one's going to do it for you but also um uh that whole mentality of of thinking, yeah, I'm, I'm going to be a professional ice hockey player. I literally think that about some of the things that I just start like, and we know what it takes to be good at something because we've done our 10,000 hours of music. And yet there is that sort of naivety that I actually think is really beneficial just to living the human experience of like, I want to do that professionally. And, and then you throw everything at it so I feel the same with um with boxing right now I'm suddenly like I'm suddenly like yeah I could be a professional boxer and obviously obviously it's not true um I would be killed immediately if I was even in the ring with you know a, a, a good amateur let alone one of the professional women but it's just that sort of mindset where you're just like well I'm gonna live as though I could, and I'm going to try as hard as I possibly can. And then the second thing is the, um, although you know, you don't know what you're going to do, like your first year of school, you know that you didn't want to do business. That's also another really important thing. Like people need to experiment with things and like figure out if you really, really try and do something and you go to school for it to know that there are other options. It's, um, that's, it's very impressive. I mean, I also think like anything you go to school for, there's benefits in whatever you, you study, like engaging your brain 
in ways that are difficult will benefit you in whatever you do. Like I look back at my high school. Uh, I never, it wasn't a music high school. There was like a band class, but our band wasn't that great. I was the fourth chair clarinet. Like I sucked and never practiced, but there was like no guitar classes. There was no, it wasn't like an art school per se. Um, I did stuff like calculus and learned matrices and all these, all this kind of stuff. And I, at the time I was like, I'm wasting my time here. I just want to be a rock star. What am I doing learning this garbage? Um, but now like I look back on how much time I spent working on writing essays. And I think I use those skills. Like when I'm scripting a video, um, like that is the way that I script and the way that I write directly goes from my English classes in grade 12. The way that I look at a problem and try to see things from like maybe different, different ways. Um, and when I say a problem, like maybe a musical thing that I'm trying to do something, uh, some sort of video idea and I'm trying to come at it from a different angle. The way to think about that, I think that muscle was built doing stuff like calculus and all, all that stuff that I hated at the time. So I think there's a lot of value in education and I don't think there's enough emphasis put on the fact that, hey, even if this doesn't benefit you, hang on, this is dripping down, sneaking down on me, I'm gonna move that. If this, if, um, there's not enough, as much emphasis put on like the indirect benefits of it. And I only came to realize that years later when I've kind of gone back and thought about that stuff. I think it is something you appreciate more when you're older. Um, like my mother went to university when she was 46. Uh, maybe she graduated when she was 46 and she completely changed her life around. And um, she was working jobs when I was growing up, but she was mainly taking care of me and my brother. And then uh, she decided she wanted to be a nurse. And she didn't have the right qualifications. I don't think she had to she had to figure some stuff out. And because she had just been she was always smart, but she just hadn't been that well behaved at school. Um but all all the learning and then her own sort of self-education, like then she went to university, she really, really appreciated it. And actually, luckily, she went to university just before I did. Um, I think she was there around the same time as my brother. And I saw the way she benefited from being older, um, not necessarily... Also, I, I learned the hard way by taking a year out, taking my own gap year where I was just gigging in London and trying to do open mics here and there and working a proper job. Because after um, after I got my A-levels, um, I just thought I did not want to go to university. I was just like so done with education and especially studying more classical music. I was really nervous about going and actually doing that as a degree. I just knew I didn't want to do it as a career. But um, having seen the way she reacted to this whole new sort of field of education and whole new world for her um, really benefited me and seeing it and just like then going to university and treating it kind of like a day job. So I knew I had to get through those three years. I knew it wasn't what I wanted to do, but I knew that writing those essays about classical music would be beneficial just to my brain and my own sort of well-roundedness as a musician whether or not I was going to suddenly be doing pop music or um or rock music but yeah I think it's it is incredibly important sometimes just to show some resilience and stick out things that you don't you can't necessarily see the benefit of but there's always benefit to education that's the that's why we have jobs really because we are educating people with our videos whether it's a, a really in-depth 
idea or whether it's a silly sort of throwaway video, really. It's like it takes education to be able to do that. Um, so I, I just completely agree. And I mean, there's other ways of learning this stuff, too. Like, I think it's not necessarily the school system that you need to to go to university or it's more just like challenging your brain to do things that you're not comfortable with and improve, improve your thinkings. Yeah. Always be a beginner as well at something. I think that's maybe where we find quite a lot of joy in, in terms of other things other than music, but, you know, sort of pretending like you could possibly go professional in something else. It's kind of just like, it, it's a thrill to, see the benefits of being a beginner at something and improving really quickly because obviously the first first sort of like I don't know first year of first year of playing guitar you probably improve more than you ever will again you get yourself up to a a certain point and then it's kind of you know it's a slower return but yeah I, ju I just think that's that's really inspirational I've always wanted to if I had time like if I had two of me's I would send one of them to make another YouTube channel where I just like spend a week trying to learn a new skill. Every week is a new skill. Like the first week I would like, I don't know, try to master a kickflip on a skateboard and just spend like full time hours practicing my kickflips and see like document the process of like going through that. And then the next week could be onto something totally different, seeing how much I could do. I don't know how good at painting I could get over a week. And then the next week could be something totally new. It'd just be like new skills every week. I don't have any time to do this. But like maybe in my retirement, I'll start that new channel. <laughs> maybe in, in your retirement, you'll start a whole new career. It sounds like <laughs> I've I've definitely thought of things like that. And I think it's just the I don't know, once you build a YouTube channel and you sort of figure out what works, it's kind of fun to imagine all the other ways to make a living on YouTube of which. It, the possibilities are endless. And like once you know how to craft a video, whether it's about music, whether it's about a kickflip, I, I totally agree. And actually, I think the best way to improve at something like music and especially making videos about music is to see how other creatives or how other people in general get disciplined and good at something. So for me, I I take a lot of inspiration from professional athletes and like the way they train and you know you kind of have to think of that when it comes to music like you're not going to get better unless you train to be better so um I've just been trying to figure out ways to make sure I get some guitar practice in and make sure I actually go and you know do my self-care where it's go to the gym and do a proof of sweat and it's just like just treat it like a like it's just something you have to do just like you would any other job like you just have to do these things to be able to improve year on year i take like i think part of the uh that whole mentality of mine where it's like oh yeah i could be a professional whatever hockey player whatever it comes from the fact that i figured out how to get good at something through music like i figured out especially during my college years like i honed that method of practice and i realized how it is that you actively improve and I would spend five hours every day practicing around there. Sometimes it was more, sometimes it was less. But I was like, when I wasn't at my classes or like at rehearsal or gigging or whatever, like I was practicing guitar and I developed like a system to do that. And so I feel like I never had that system of improvement when I was younger and I was practicing like my stick handling or, or my skateboarding or whatever. 
But having that system that I developed in my 20s, I feel like if I had the time, I could go back and do something like learning how to, to ollie or do some kickflips. With that same system of improving at music, if I took that to skateboarding, I think I could like become much better at it than I did back in the day when I just didn't know what I was doing. I was just like messing around in my driveway. Yeah. And it's, it's strange that our lives took us in the direction of music because I think about the hours that I put in to playing guitar in my spare time when I wasn't doing uh, real music, as I used to put it, um, in terms of playing viola, violin, piano, singing, and just realizing that even just turning up to things like choir practice that I found so boring and orchestra practice, which I... I really struggle to get through rehearsals sometimes. It's just like, oh, it just teaches you discipline. And I, I wish I had possibly treated guitar a little bit more like that, but it was my hobby. And so making the transition from it being my hobby to now my career, it's taken a lot of, I, I've had to sort of unpick my whole ethos about the guitar where I'm like, okay, I know how to get good at something but I'm not improving on this thing that I absolutely adore and I want to be better at. So how the hell do I do that? And I have to treat it in a very different way from it going from my hobby to a career. One of the things I miss is practicing and trying to get better at guitar. Like I don't think there's been a vast, a drastic change in the way I play guitar over the last five years. Maybe it's matured a bit since I started doing YouTube because I'm playing all the time. But the, the the development has been much less apparent than like those five years I spent at school where I just went like, that's where the biggest drastic change happened. And then after that, I stopped practicing. Like I, I don't practice guitar anymore. I haven't practiced guitar for like seven years. And part of me wishes I had time to do that again and like try to get better. But the other part of me is like, well, where, where are you going to take that time from? What's going to be lost if I do that? So my mentality was like when I was at school, like I was practicing a lot. That was my life was just focusing on, on music and getting better. And it wasn't a very, wasn't the most balanced life. Things suffered because of that. But I told myself, this is the only period of time in my life where I'm ever going to be able to do this. So just like gut it out for four years, five years. And then when it's done, take whatever skills I've developed and like, that's what I'm going to be with for the rest of my life. So that's why I need to power through these, these five years and work as hard as I can. But part of me misses that. I miss just like the only thing I would do in a day was just like, I had the things I was going to work on, learn new songs and just do all this stuff and develop a skill. And like, I haven't done that because that time now goes to making videos or things in and around this bubble. So what does your daily routine look like when you are now predominantly spending your time filming and editing videos? Because um, I feel you yeah, when it comes to having that time again to spend eight hours playing guitar, it's kind of gone for us because we have jobs now um, and everyone experiences that when they get older. Um, but what does your, what's your daily routine like when you are in Winnipeg? I try to take Saturdays and Sundays off as much as I can, or just like, I'll try to do like little nitpicking things those days. So if I have to write out like 
tabs or, or things like that. I'll do them Saturday and Sunday where I could just pick away at things. But Monday through Friday, I keep pretty weird hours. Wake up at noon, um, kind of get out of bed, I don't know, noon, 12.30, make breakfast, drink coffee. Um, usually after that, I'll spend an hour doing something that doesn't require a ton of creative effort, um, stuff like emails maybe for an hour. And then at that point, uh, what are we at? Like maybe two or three o'clock, do a workout. There's an hour in there. And then depending on what I need to do, I'll probably start conceptualizing video ideas at that point. Maybe start typing something up. Um, that'll be two hours, make dinner, takes me to seven or eight. And then at that point it's like, okay, now I can go and shoot. Uh, the other thing I like to make sure I do is I always shoot when it's dark out, uh, purely because like there's a window right here. And if I'm shooting for two hours and I start in the day and end in the night and you're moving pieces around, it looks very strange. Uh, and I also don't like putting up blinds because then I just never see the sun ever. So by eight o'clock, start shooting. Hopefully uh, I can do or shooting <clears throat> or recording. Like if there's a music part in a video, I'll usually do that first because I'll kind of plan everything else around those parts. And so maybe the first day is just like recording those, those parts. Second day, everything's mostly the same up to when I record. And then it's maybe shooting the video for the music parts. Uh, generally speaking, I usually uh, record my audio and then do the video separately. I just find if I'm trying to do both those things at the same time, it's just too much and there's too many variables and things get too messed up. So like generally speaking, and this isn't true all the time, but like if you see me playing guitar in a video, like it's usually just like I've relearned that part and played it note for note how I did it when I recorded it. Um, yeah. The reason for that is multifold. Um, first of all, I didn't always do that. And I found, oh, I just got the perfect take. Finally, took me two hours to get that perfect take and realized that the camera was out of focus. And then I had to do everything again. And then finally got the perfect video take. Oh, wait, I screwed up that guitar part. And it just, it wasn't an efficient use of my time. So I just did them separately and it saved me some time in there. Uh, and then the other thing is like, if there's another camera, then I got to take that camera, put it over here. Um, and if I'm trying to do everything in one take, then those things are never gonna line up. So for the most part, I try to do, I'll usually do, um, like do those two things separately, which has its own like troubles because then I have to relearn what I played note for note, which takes forever to do a lot of the time. And when if it's, if it's like a two minute thing where you have to, where there's a bunch of little subtleties, it's very hard to remember, wait a second, did I do a hammer on there? Did I do like a finger pick there? So. Anyway, that's day two, day three. Uh, somewhere in here, I play rec hockey and rec soccer as well. So uh, that will often take up like three hours in a day sometimes too. Um, and when that happens, just like everything gets pushed around that. And that's something that I'm not taking out of my schedule because that's the thing that usually keeps me sane. Uh, and then the other day, next day, maybe I'll shoot the, the video part where I'm talking to the camera. That's a pretty good two, two and a half hours there do a, a quick edit of it. Next day, it's about doing all like the, the editing and the animations and, and all that sort of thing. And then maybe we're at Friday here and then I need to make like a thumbnail, which always takes me longer than I plan on. All the little nitpicky things. Uh, and then it's like, it's the weekend. So 
it doesn't, like I look at my life, I'm like, why is this taking me so much time? But when I break it down, it makes sense where all that time goes. And sometime in there, I try to get like, shoot an Instagram video, a quick little thing for Instagram over the week. Um, things like doing podcasts, things like uh, trying to go for dinner with my parents or, or Jenny's parents. Like, it's just like, quickly you run out of time. It's tough to realize that there are only 24 hours in a day. And it's only ever going to be that way as well. That's what I'm, that's what I'm starting to realize. I don't know, I don't know what I thought when I was younger or even when I was starting out YouTube, but I felt like the more successful you got or the more numbers you got that you almost had more time. And I know that sounds mad, but I've just, I've realized like I've, I've been speaking about it, but, um, I've tried to divide my day up into just hours and in terms of like how in terms of how much sleep I get how much I need to work out how much I need to spend on running a business how much time I need to spend on actually getting better at guitar writing songs all that sort of stuff and just sort of prioritizing but what time do you stay up until uh so like I'm just thinking about what my day is gonna look like today woke up at noon 30 today noon after this I have another meeting, another Skype meeting, and then I need to go drive to my buddy's place and pick up a guitar that I'm using for a video. Uh, and then I'm gonna get back here, do a quick workout, make something to eat. Probably takes me to seven. And then I'm gonna try to shoot some video from like seven to nine, then go to hockey, which is at 10. Uh, 10 to 11, play my game, hang out with the boys in the dressing room for like half an hour, an hour. I'll be back by midnight. And then I'll probably do like, I'm going to, I'm saying to myself, I'm going to do two hours of work at that point, probably going to turn into three or four and like end up going to bed at like five in the morning. It's insane. That makes sense because you've sent me messages and I've been like, what time is it in Canada right now? <laughs> and now, and now it makes sense. Um, is that, is that a, is that a lifestyle choice that you've lived for a long time? And do you, do you receive any judgment from people about waking up at midday? Oh yeah. My buddy's ripping me all the time, but it's like, listen, what are you doing all day? You're, you're going and sitting in an office. You're judging me. Come on. Nothing against yeah. sitting in an <laughs> office, but like, but like, who, who are you to say, oh, your lifestyle is weird to me. Their lifestyle is weird going, waking up and doing the same thing from nine to five every day. At least I, if I wanted to, like I have the ability to, to do whatever I want. Um, anyway, no judgment to the office workers. I'm just saying. No, obviously everyone has to, everyone has to pay their rent, but, um, yeah, no, I, 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 I get it. I'm definitely a night owl and I definitely understand the whole process of, uh, making a video at night. Um, I love it when it's winter here because one, I don't feel obligated to go outside. Um, and two, because, uh, it gets darker at sort of, you know, four or 5 PM, and it means I can make videos earlier than in the summer. Um, I've actually tried to make sure that I've got kind of a blackout blind in my studio now that I can just sort of, if I'm in here, I can just make everything really quick and just pull that down. And actually now I can shoot, but it does let a little, it's not quite a full blackout. Um, but luckily the rest of my, yeah, it's, it's how, what are the evenings like in, Canada. It's crazy because like you can still see bits of the sun at like 1130 and then it comes up at four. Yeah. 
yeah, it's not quite as extreme as that here, but it, you know, during the height of summer, it's, it's light until about 10 PM, which, um, you know, a lot of other regions just don't experience as much. I was, I was really shocked going to Los Angeles in summertime years and years ago and just realizing that it still got dark at like 7 PM for them. And I was like, what? When I think of like, I used to always do the same thing. Like when I was young, going to school, I hated getting up in the morning. Like I've always hated mornings. But the great thing about nights are, and the reason why this is kind of always keeps happening to me, like I get on a normal schedule and it always shifts back. It's because there's no distractions at night. There's no hockey game. The Jets aren't playing in, at midnight. So like there's nothing to distract me. Nobody's texting me and be like, hey, can you do this? Can you do this? Uh, nobody's asking me to come hang out with them or come for dinner. There's nothing to distract you at night. And the other thing is all it takes for me is one night where you're like, you're really in the zone and you just want to keep going, keep going. And suddenly it's 4 a.m. And so even if you woke up at 8 a.m. that day, if you go to sleep at 4 a.m., I'm a man, I got to get my, eight, I'm a man who likes to sleep, got to get my eight hours. Okay. Got to get my eight hours. It's a very healthy thing. I think at least like, I feel like if I don't get eight hours of sleep, not a happy guy. So if I stay up till 4 a.m., 5 a.m., I'm going to sleep for eight hours. Suddenly now I'm back to waking up at, at noon. All it takes is one day for that to happen. And that day will happen no matter what it always does. And then when I don't have that external pressure of like school saying, you got to be here at nine or work saying you got to be here at nine, everything just get, gets shifted back to the point where I just always end up on the schedule. It always happens. Yeah. No, I, I, completely I resonate completely and actually when I was living with people they were really uh, I was living with one other musician a few years ago um, and he and I were, we were on the same schedule but our friends who had day jobs were just hating on us because we just didn't get up until 11 a.m because we were gigging until 1 1 p.m sometime uh, 1 a.m sorry and then after you've done a gig a four we were doing four hour cover sets um <clears throat> when you've done a gig, the last thing you want to do is sleep. The, the, you, you want to wind down, but you also want to have your evening. Like it's, if you treat it like a day job, when, if you're doing cover sets, it really is kind of like a day job. Um, yeah, I, I, I completely feel you. I'm in a much better cycle now because I have also learned the art of sleeping. Um, and, uh, I, I enjoy getting up at sort of like 8 a.m., which I still see as a luxury because I have friends who have to get up at 6 to go to their day jobs. Um, but I I really try and not work much past midnight. Just And this is just how I function better. But yeah, I've, I, I need sleep now. Whereas for the first years of YouTube, because I was working a day job, I really didn't get any sleep. Um, and you can kind of tell. And I was eating badly because I was tired all the time. I didn't look healthy and, you know, putting a camera in front of a face that is not healthy is just like, it's not really a, a good thing to see. Especially in these days of 4k. Like I, as soon as I got my 4k camera, I was like, Oh, there are wrinkles there that weren't there before. Oh, well, it is the one thing I, I do complain about having to put on makeup, but then it's also the saving grace sometimes that I can hide the real bags. But actually the proof of sweat always reveals it because I never wear makeup to the gym. And then I have to post a selfie. I don't have to post it, but I do for my own 
vanity or whatever reasons um and people ask me they're like oh you should you should get some sleep and I'm like I still got eight hours I still got eight hours last night and I've still got bags under my eyes thank god for makeup I use makeup sometimes not often but like if I was shooting a video right now, I put like makeup on, like there's a little zit right here. I would put a little cover up on that. There's no shame in it either because uh, newscasters or, um, you know, TV personalities all wear makeup, whether they're male or female. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I recommend it to all my male friends <laughs> who, who might be ashamed. I'm not going to put like half an hour into putting on makeup but if like there's a zit right in the middle of my forehead so it's like i don't want to have to deal with this stupid comment that's going to come up there's going to be like five times where someone's going to mention the comment and i just or mention the zit in the comment i just don't want to deal with that it's easy enough for me to put a little dab of cover up right in the middle of the forehead yeah no i totally agree um okay so let's uh talk about your makeup routine i'm joking um that that that'll be that'll be the the title of this whole video it'll be like samurai guitarists makeup routine makeup do routine. a makeup tutorial my sister gave me like some sampler pack of just like one little thing like i don't know even know where she got it and i've just used that for for seven years yeah i'm i'm pretty frugal when it comes to makeup like i have four items i'm kind of like the you know when obviously you i don't know whether jenny is is uh a typical a stereotype of a woman in terms of um uh the the two hours to get ready but i'm 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 not i am not i am thankfully i i can put makeup on in five minutes that's ca camera ready makeup but i keep it simple and i don't ever experiment and i've just realized it's a bit like steve jobs wearing the same thing all the time wearing black or, or a t-shirt or something it's like okay if i know something that works I am not going to change it because otherwise, again, I will face comments where it's like, oh, Mary's tried something new or da, da, da. And I'm just like, OK, I'm just going to keep it si simple. And I do that for clothing. It's just like I don't want that to be the focus of this video. Focus on this other thing. And if there's a massive zit in the middle of your forehead, that suddenly becomes a thing that people are just like, <laughs> just like staring you in the eye. Yeah, that's very true. That is very true. Have you ever had to reshoot a video for, for some sort of strange reason like that? All the time. I've had... I, I've I've actually had to learn to let go because sometimes I've had deadlines that I just I I've there was one video where and it did very well but I was doing it really really late at night before a flight the next day and at the time I was having a friend help me with editing and I I looked I'd been concentrating so much on learning this guitar part that I had smudged all my makeup like it was so it was so bad. When I looked in the mirror afterwards, I looked like a panda. Um, or I, look, I looked like I'd been crying. And it's because I, if I scrunch my eyes up, obviously the makeup goes everywhere. I hadn't noticed. I'd filmed for three hours to really like learn, learn this oh, track. No. And I was like, well, I'm just going to have to put this out there. And luckily, my friend John, I, I don't know whether he graded it, but you, you can tell that it's not as bad on camera as I was expecting it to but I would have if I'd had time I would have reshot it all but thank god and actually I've got look I've got a little compact here just to be like okay I don't have smudges from my eyeliner um but uh, another uh example of just soul crushing and it's why I don't do them that often anymore uh but I did a cover video of um uh, isn't she lovely by stevie wonder and um 
I think I did a hundred takes, if not more, because one, I hadn't learned the song properly. I hadn't got the arrangement down before actually starting to film. Two, I had a second camera out of focus. So I resonate with your story earlier, uh, or the reasoning behind how you make your videos. And then also I was wearing a scarf and for the first 50 attempts, and when I, I actually got the take, like around 50, um, I realized that the label of the scarf was showing. And it was just like this big bit of white. And it just, and then the second camera was out, slightly out of focus. And I was just like, oh my God, I'm going to have to do it again. And I'd been spending hours on it. And that was one of the times when I was, you know, really struggling to find time to shoot because of having a full-time job and I just had to go until the early hours of the morning and then I finally got it but it was around you know because that really threw me off I think that's the other thing is like having learning to be in front of a camera and feeling natural is it takes so so long and it's taken me such a long time to just forgive myself for the things that I come up with, the things I come out with, how it's just, it's kind of devastating to go through all those trial and errors, but you have to, to, to learn how to just actually just get on and do it. Yeah. And letting go of certain things. And that's not a thing I'm good at. I'm just very, I want it to be perfect. Um, case in point the other day, so I, I script all my videos. They end up usually being about, uh, I know that it's usually like two and a half pages of like, I think it's like 12, 12 font. And that is about eight to 10 minutes of a video. Uh, and then the way that I do it is I will like memorize like a paragraph at a time and then deliver that to the camera. And that often can take really long because you, you're trying to memorize something. And it's like, it's hard to do that on the spot, but I've got better at it. But either way, like it'll always take me at least an hour, hour and a half to shoot a video. And then what I do, the first thing I do when I'm done that is I go and transfer it to my hard drive and then put the edit together, like just quickly chop it up to make sure everything looks good. Um, because I've found a number of times something didn't look good. And if all my lights are still set up then I can just go and shoot that part again. So the other day I realized I shot the video and like there's a little bit of hair that was like popping like straight out like this. <laughs> And it was just driving me insane. It, was, it wasn't that bad. I don't know if you can see that, but it was doing one of those. And I just watched the video. I was like, oh no, am I going to reshoot this? And I just, there's that part of me that says, just go do it. It's going to take an hour and a half. But I've learned to just push that thing down because I don't think anyone will notice that as much as I do. Uh, but in the past, like I've done entire video reshoots. I remember once it was the stupidest reason. I felt like I put like lip, uh, lip chap on and my lips were like really, really glistening. And it just bothered me. I was like, I don't like this. I'm reshooting this video because of this. And like weird things that you get into your, into your head about. Uh, there was one where I, what, what happened on that one? Like there was something weird that was happening with, with my hair. Like, I think it was that exact thing where like a piece stuck out and I just reshot the entire video because of that. But then there were times where something like that happened. I just was like, you know, I don't have time to do this. And nobody even noticed it. And so I've just been trying to tell myself there will be imperfections. Things like that don't really matter. That battle you have with yourself when it comes to just having a deadline as well. Like if you can't redo it, you just have to throw it up on YouTube. And that sort of 
actually, in one way, it kind of benefits to have something like uh, a spot or like a hair out of place or something because people will comment about it underneath. And obviously we know that the more comments a video gets, the more interaction it gets and therefore it actually benefits the video. Um, but at the same time, like for your own self-worth, it's really difficult to let go and get that thing out there. But I'm just trying to... I'm just trying to learn that most people, yeah, don't notice and the people that really matter and the people who are going to take something away from the video will just ignore it and they'll just enjoy it. And then, you know. And the other thing is like it, it humanizes you as well. I remember I was watching a video of John Mayer perform a song on like a radio show and he played a really, he sang like a really bad note very abrasively bad and it's just one of them because he's super good it doesn't have happen that often but when i saw him do that it wasn't like oh this guy sucks i'm never listening to him again it was more like oh yeah he's a human too it's cool to remember that like little mistakes aren't the end of the world i've definitely learned that faster in terms of actually making music because i find that if a song is really sterile in the recording process and it's really perfect we all know that that loses something. So I totally agree. And when it comes to videos as well, like the people, um, the people who do best on something like YouTube have a sense of humility behind them and they don't take themselves too seriously. They talk, they take their work seriously, but they don't take themselves all that seriously. So adding humor into a video just allows for, I don't know. I just, I think all the people I am friends with who make content regularly have an incredible sense of humor and can laugh at themselves. And that's why I think we have the resilience to be able to be on a platform like YouTube and actually just know that, you know, we don't have to be perfect and we don't have to hold up an, a, a picture perfect, like a Hollywood image. Um, and thank God we don't, because the time of that sort of celebrity has gone like everyone wants to associate with their favorite musicians favorite actors and see a side of their personality rather than just an intimidating personality yeah i mean i try to always remind myself of that stuff but like in the moment you're like you're trying to make it the best it can be right like when i'm recording something and there isn't a mistake in there it's like nope you got to try to balance those two and, and find where it's okay to be not quite perfect, but also like good enough that it's not below your, your standards. So do you record, when you record stuff for your, your channel, is it all uh, like any music stuff? Like you're recording audio, guitar, all at the same time and video. Yeah. See, I don't do that. Uh, I think like for me, the reason, one of the big reasons is like, I don't have time to get this stuff performance ready. To me, performance ready is like when I've practiced it so well that I can't play it wrong. I get it to the point where I can play it right. And to me, like that's not performance ready. If I can get it to the point where one out of 10 times I can play it right, perfect. That's good enough for YouTube and I can move on. If I was trying to get things to the point where they were like, I'm ready to go and play this live, it just requires so much more effort and it doesn't really have a benefit because like at the end of the day, the YouTube video would still be exactly the same. I've just put five more days into it, which means I can't make that next one. And so for me, getting those things out quick requires me to just get it good enough that I can play it 
play it once. And I always tell, like, when I used to teach, I would tell, tell my students, the goal is not to get, to get to the point where you can play something right. It's the goal is to get to the point where you can't play it wrong. And like, I just don't have time to get to that point. I think we also make very different videos. So I, I don't, um, I'm not, uh, how do I put this? Quite a lot of the stuff that I do, if I'm trialing something or demoing a piece of gear, I'm just improving or playing a song I've written. Um, so I, wouldn't necessarily I'm not necessarily playing to click I wouldn't necessarily be able to mime along to it I might also just be recording it you know through my boom mic sometimes if it's a if it's acoustic guitar um or just throw up something else and just put it in front of me and then just play along and then just sync it later but yeah I I and then you know if I um go to a guitar shop um capturing that audio like I just have to capture it there and then and it's never perfect and and then I just make a story later um but yeah it's 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 really intriguing because I have literally been making a video today uh, which will obviously be out before this is out um where I've made a track completely separate and then I'm gonna make a video tonight miming along to it like an official music video because um I couldn't do it live. I was using the uh, MIDI guitar. I've got the jammy guitar to make something completely out of my comfort zone. Um, and then singing along, you know, make it, it's a cover song, but it's, it's so many layers of uh, samples and stuff like that. I, I, I can't do it in one go. Like I usually would, where I'd usually just sing and play guitar at the same time. So it's going to be really, really enjoyable miming along to something I've already got done and um and going back to videos that I actually used to make in like 2015 I was doing a series I was trying to do a cover song my first attempt at YouTube and doing YouTube regularly when I was completely inspired by Casey Neistat doing his daily vlogs um was to do a cover every week but record it first and then film the video later because I didn't have yeah make a music video but I was I, you know, I was still keeping the recording really simple, but I actually think I want to go back to that because seeing how, uh, Leo Maracchioli Frog Leap Studios does his video every week, um, in person. And then obviously watching him on YouTube too, I'm like, oh my God, I'd improve my recording techniques way better if I was actually making a track every week as well. I mean, I think there's like, people get it when it looks like a music video and there's like a bunch of different angles on the camera and like there's a slider going across it's like yeah this is this is pre-recorded but for stuff where it's like there's also times where it's like you're presenting something that if if it looks like it was recorded live in person then it probably is uh like times where like i've gone to uh, i did a video where i went to the guitar store and just like gave pedals to random people and like jammed with a couple of them clearly that stuff is not pre-recorded um i don't know i maybe it's obvious to me but like if it looks like if it looks like it's a music video, it's made like it's a music video. And I think people are, are okay with that. Yeah, I, I definitely think so. I, I also think it helps that you and I both know in ourselves that if someone asked us to play guitar live or sing and play guitar live, um, we'd be able to do it because we've done the work behind it. So whatever you need to do to get the video done is also okay because you can hold your own 
and play guitar well. Um, I think the only the difficulty is that if someone is making YouTube videos in that way before they've even had any performing experience, they're going to have a real shock when they get up on stage in front of people. Yeah, I mean, and I think there's like there's a difference between making good art per se and like trying to deceive people like there's a very big difference if I was um, presenting something as if it's like, hey, check this out. Um, if you can't play that just like I just played it, you're not a guitar, you're not a real guitar player. And like that was done and that was mimed or something like that. Then that just seems comes across as deceptive. Whereas if like, I don't know, if I'm like, I'm demoing something or if I'm like, like I said, if it looks like a music video, it's made like a music video. But if you're trying to be purely deceptive, I think that's where I would have a problem with that. Um, if it was like, hey, look at me. If the whole root heart of the video was the, look at me perform something and you weren't actually performing it on the spot, maybe I would have an issue there, but I don't know. It's also something I've really... Uh, become way more aware of is from making videos and having to think more like a filmmaker now than just like a video maker, uh, home, a home movie maker, is like how, how are professional films made? And when you understand that all the sound effects that you are thinking are happening there and then, like footsteps, and this is, I know most people understand this, but like, it's just taken me a long time to realize that's sometimes the way you have to make a video, even for YouTube, like you have to do Foley. Um, so it kind of just, I think people have been deceived by professional TV shows that things are happening when they're happening and now I'm learning and I've been working on a bigger project um which will be coming out around the time that this comes out but uh just being behind the scenes of that pro project and seeing how it's really done I'm just absolutely blown away but um talking of pedals when you were talking about the I love I loved that video of you walking around it was Venice Beach right was it Venice Beach I did it twice. I did one where I walked around. Uh, no, it wasn't Venice. It was Redondo and Hermosa. Yes. Which is like, which is if uh, those are the two beaches south of Venice. Oh, wait, no, there's Manhattan in there somewhere. A bit south of Venice. Okay, but you were doing it on the beach. I, I, that one and then obviously the one in the guitar store too when you're dressed as Santa. Yeah, that was fun. Stressful. I, I didn't look forward to shooting those videos in the least bit, but I think they turned out really well. Yeah, because the the bulk of my videos, it's a control thing, right? So like I said, I script everything out. I know exactly what this video, uh, a video is going to look like for the most part before I make it. And I know that if it doesn't look like that, I can go back and redo things so that it gets to what I want it to be. If I screw something up, I can just go back and reshoot it. If I, if it turns out my microphone wasn't on the entire time, which has happened, I can just go back and reshoot it. Whereas with those videos, I had no idea what was going to happen. I had no idea if it was going to be some sort of like major technical issue. And both of those videos had some pretty, pretty big technical issues that I had to fix later. Um, but just not knowing and not having a chance to redo it is something that scares me a lot 
Because if you get someone a pedal and you go home and realize you forgot to turn the camera on, you can't just go back and reshoot that clip again. That pedal is gone forever. And so that, that thing stressed me out going into it. Um, and just not knowing what the reactions would be like. Like when we went to Hermosa Beach, I was like, I don't know if we're gonna find anyone who wants these, which will make part of the video interesting. But if I can't give a single one of these away over the next four hours, I got an issue here and I gotta rethink what we're doing. Fortunately, the very first guy we walked up to, and I'm not exaggerating, he was like, hey man, are you? And like, that was just, that was very nice for that to happen. Like literally the very first person we talked to knew who I was and I gave him a pedal and that just kind of set the tone for the entire thing. Um, and when I shot it at the guitar store, I knew it was gonna be better, but there were like hiccups that happened in that video too. I was supposed to do that video at two different locations. So the first day we went to one location, uh, I gave away five pedals and I was like, oh, this is going great. We drove to the next location and the store was dead. There wasn't a single customer in there. And I still had five guitar pedals. Like, what am I, what am I doing here? And so the next day we went back to the original store and gave away like three or four more so that we could finish up the video. But it's just the, un, the unknowing, the non-knowing aspect scares me. The video I'm shooting tonight, I know exactly what needs to be done. I know how it's gonna look and I know I've, I'm not stressed about it at all. Videos where I don't have control like that, they always worry me a bit, but I've kind of, the fact that I've done more of them has made it easier to do. Yeah, I kind of love it. I kind of, and I, I loved those videos in terms of how spontaneous they were and like how things worked out because obviously then you're editing and the, the, you know, the crafting of the video is always entertaining. Um, but I, I totally understand. Like I used to think it was easier for me to make a video on the road than it was at home because I relied on vloggy footage. I'd been watching a lot of vlogs. I didn't really worry about storytelling as much because I was so new to video making. I didn't really know how to hold an audience's attention. I was just making videos. Um, now I've got this set up and, you know, I know what I'm doing and, you know, even just investing, I only invested in it recently, but a boom mic as opposed to a laugh um, and making sure that I've got a screen. I know that my camera is in focus and, you know, having a monitor and stuff and realizing like I have been living with a very minimal setup for a very, very long time and a very risky setup because, again, I've done the same thing where uh, I've formatted cards when I've just been checking how much space there is. So I've lost footage. I've um, not turned on my microphone. I've, you know, it's all been grainy. It's been really just bad lighting like lighting is the most significant thing when it comes to making videos like it doesn't matter what camera you have um so yeah learning all those things but it's always interesting to hear someone else's process and like where they find they can be most creative and ha have you found any tricks to speeding up your process at all other than recording audio separately is there anything else in terms of actual video creation I think just like honing my skills is just like, as far as like editing quickly on, on Final Cut. And I think the other big thing is just like trying to idiot proof my life as much as possible. Cause it's like, when you mess something up, that's the thing that's gonna, gonna take two hours to fix. And so just like having done this routine so many times, like I know what to check. Like right now, every now and then I look down at this just to make sure that my Zoom is still recording. Um, it's, at some point in my life, I probably wouldn't have done that. And then if I realized this wasn't recording, oh, we got to shoot this entire podcast again. Or if I'm doing a video, got to shoot the entire video again. Just like 
having those fail safes built into my, my system is what has saved, I think, a lot of time. Um, another thing was getting a 4K camera actually saved me quite a bit of time because before, uh, so to get a little bit techie for people who are, are not that techie, when you're shooting in 1080, that means like the screen that you see in the YouTube video is the exact screen that was shot by your camera. When you shoot in 4K, what I'm doing is shooting like four times the size of that, which means I can cut in, uh, expand it and make it look like it's 1080 without it getting pixelated. So because of that, when I used to shoot videos, um, it was just like a hard cut. It was the exact same look, the exact same framing um, between when I would deliver a line, okay? And so uh, if I say something, I deliver my line and then it, it's just like a jump cut to the next thing. Now, with 4K, what I'll do is I'll, instead of having that hard jump cut to the exact same framing, I'll cut in a little bit and then cut back out. And so how this ties into what I'm talking about is if I screwed something up, back in the day and I needed to reshoot like one line or something, I had to make sure the camera was perfectly in place and everything in the background was exactly the same. Because if say I have three lines and these two are perfect and this one's off, well, if all these are the exact same framing and I reshoot this one and the camera just adjusts slightly, it's very abrasive if like the lighting changes between these ones. Whereas if with 4K, if I zoom that one in a little bit and it's a bit of a different framing, it's much less abrasive and you won't even see those subtle changes because what the eye catches on to is the fact that it jumped in a little bit or jumped out a little bit. So doing that made it so that I could put those corrections in. Whereas before, if that line's off, entire video's getting reshot. Or at least I'm gonna try to find a place where I can smooth out that thing so it doesn't have that horrible abrasive jump where I'm suddenly over here and the framing has changed a little bit just for that one line. Yeah, I have the same thing with my hair. I have to make sure that my hair is not changing all the time and behind my ear at one point because otherwise, yeah, exactly, exactly the same thing. Um, I've definitely learned the art of punching in a little bit. Um, and actually my cameras are not fully 4K, <clears throat> um, but just punching in like a few... Uh, percent as it were and instead of jump cutting like I used to where it would just be like the typical YouTube jump cut thing um and just learning to just avoid doing that and just punch in instead of yeah it's just it's just way better just to help cut out the ums and the uh, or the oh god I did that wrong da, 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 you know all that sort of stuff but yeah and because you you don't you don't script your stuff you're kind of just like more like you got talking points and you go off the cuff when you're delivering your I've started scripting my videos now it's changed my life it's changed my life and um I only there are still some videos obviously I don't script when it's just me talking to camera and there are many ums I did one uh, towards the end of last year where it was just like I just wanted to get some stuff off my chest um but now uh the fretless video scripted um, and that, you know, telling a story and I've learned that from, from you, from Paul and Adam, just making sure that you actually get what you need to say said on camera has completely changed my life. And it's changed my whole way of storytelling in a video. And I, I much prefer it, much prefer it. It gives me way more security in terms of actually knowing I'm going to produce a video at the time I'm shooting a video rather than having to like 
try and craft something out in editing, which I'm glad I learned how to do that to a point. But oh my God, scripting saves so much time. It does. And I mean, it's it's like the stuff, like the pre-recording, like there's a time and a place for it. And it's pretty clear when I think, at least for my videos, when I've done it, uh, like videos where I'm, I'm hanging out with my my buddies who aren't musicians and we put together some some video, like that stuff isn't scripted and it wouldn't work if it's scripted. It's very clear, like that is like, a natural thing. And it's a way different process for making those videos. Um, when I've shot video, like when we did the video in Toman, clearly wasn't scripted. We just shot the video and then edited, cobbled all the pieces together and cut down an hour of footage into five minutes. It's a very different process and I really do enjoy that process, but those are the ones that make me nervous. Whereas like the scripting ones, I just, as soon as the script's done, I'm like, I know what the video is gonna be like. Whereas like, Going into a studio with three guys who have never played music before, I had no idea what that was going to turn into. And like, it took a lot of effort to make that happen. And I was like, this might be the worst thing I ever make. And I've kind of already got, it, it was honestly my favorite video I've ever made. The bond between you and your friends, it's just so enjoyable to watch. But also, that you know, having done a video with you where we got out of that hour... We, we left that studio after an hour of kind of it was a nail biting scenario for me because I I was under pressure in terms of like actually having to get things right or, or you know, being challenged, which was really enjoyable as well. Like I enjoy I enjoy the nerves, um, but just putting faith in your editing skills was like the best thing I could have done because I know that you have such a good sense of humor that can be captured in editing. Whereas other people might just make a boring video out of that, but you just, yeah, you turned it into five minutes of, of fun. It's great. I love that video. Yeah, me too. The first time I did that, it was nerve wracking. Adam and I did that, uh, at GitCon like a year or whatever, seven months before. And it was the same thing. We walked out of that. And that was like, I think one of the first times I made a video like that, and I think I walked out, I was like, this might just not be a video. I, cause it felt so different than anything else I've done, but I've learned that if you shoot enough footage, you can always condense it down. Um, my friend, Sean Daniel and I shot a video a couple weeks back where we just like for two hours, we just responded to, I asked people for their controversial musical opinions on, on Instagram and him and I just responded to them. And if anybody just watched us doing that live, I think it would be extremely boring. But when you condense down two hours of footage down to 10 minutes, just taking the best, uh, I guess that would be one twelfth of a percent of that stuff, it turns into something that's pretty enjoyable, in my opinion. Um, but it's scary to do that. And I've just learned, having done that a handful of times, that I walk away from every one of those videos being like, is this good? And it always ends up fine. And it always will be until that one time it's not. And then it's going to make me doubt everything. Yeah, but it's also the best thing is like you are in control in terms of the editing process. If you were handing it over to someone else to edit, that makes me nervous. That's why I keep, you know, I, 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 I had an editor for a bit, which really, really helped when I was still working a full time day job. Um, but now I just I love the control over the, the arc of the storytelling and. And, and being able to do that. Sorry, I cut you off though. What were you going to say? Well, I mean, when it's scripted, like then it's easy to hand it over because I don't know exactly how you do it. But once I have a line, once I've delivered my line, whatever that happens to be, I just go like, I do a big clap and you just see that spike. And then I just, when I'm cutting it up on Final Cut, I just 
find the spikes, cut that part out, cut that part out, cut that part out. 10 minutes, it's edited down into, into the thing. So like that kind of stuff I could hand off because that's just a menial task. But when it comes to like turning it into a story and it's kind of off the cuff, that's where it's like, it's gotta be me. Like the one that we did at the, uh, at the studio with me and my buddies, like that was like, I don't think I've ever spent that much time editing a video because I was taking things from different places and moving it around in the timeline so that it all told that story. One of the best things I ever learned about doing that kind of video off the cuff where you're not controlling everything was when we were at Tomon and this is a, like Paul told me this, Paul Davids, check him out if you don't know him. Um, but I was doing that video where I recorded, uh, remember I got everybody to do like musical telephone, right? So what I did is I just played a riff on my guitar and then I got the next person to listen to that once, play that riff. Next person listens to what that person played, play a riff and just so on and so on and so on. And eventually, uh, after like five or six people, I just turned into a really basic pentatonic lick. And at that point I'm like, what am I even doing with this? This is just gonna be the same thing over and over again. This is not an interesting video anymore. I was hoping it would evolve into something crazy and we would watch this thing become this really cool, unique thing, but it just turned into this boring, basic thing. And I remember I was just like walking around the outside at Tomon, taking a break from that. And Paul came up to me, he's like, how's your video going? And I'm like, I think I might have to redo everything. It's turned into this boring, uninteresting thing. And Paul was like, well, use that to tell your story. Talk to the camera. Let's have, have this conversation that you and I are having and use that thing to now shape what the story is like going forward. You don't need to, if it doesn't turn into what you thought it was gonna turn into, that's the story in itself. And it was just like an aha moment. I was like, wow, yeah, that's great. And so I kind of take that approach to other things. If I were to go, if I were to have gone to uh, Hermosa Beach to give away pedals and not a single person wanted one or was something weird happened that I wasn't expecting, then I think maybe that would shape what happens next. Like those kind of videos, you have to let them evolve naturally and often cool things will happen. And so with that one that we shot at Tomon, instead of just what I did from there after, once it just devolved down to a boring pentatonic lick, I kind of talked to the camera and said, here's what's happened. Um, what I'm gonna do now is get people to listen to this once. And uh, what did I do? I think maybe I got people to play something inspired by that thing. And then the next person plays something inspired by what the last person played instead of trying to play it exactly. And then my whole thing was, well, at the end, will we still be able to hear that pentatonic lick after 10 more people have been inspired by the last person listening to that thing? And turned into an interesting video. More interesting than I think it would have been if I had just, if it had just turned out exactly how I wanted it to be. So Paul, that was a great tip. And that was one that I, I remember and will uh, always go back to, to this day. Yeah. That there is a, a dilemma sometimes of having an idea about something and then having that completely change and it's how you react to it. But I mean, all your videos are just, yeah, the, the, they're all very good. There we go. I will rub your ego a bit. Um, okay. So I've got a few, uh, Patreon, uh, supporter questions. The first one, the first one comes from, uh, Adam Neely, actually. How to guitar good. That's what he's asking you. How to guitar good. <laughs> well, Adam, first of all, uh, you're going to need to trade in that bass guitar, that four string thing, uh, and get one with six strings. Um, and I would say that would be the biggest starting point. And from there, 
power chords, open chords, pentatonics. Forget all that jazz stuff you learned. Forget all those passing tones. Forget all those polyrhythms. Open chords, pentatonic chords, pentatonic licks. There you go. That's specifically for Adam Neely, not for everyone else. That is yeah, yeah, yeah. Just, Adam, just for Adam. The advice for Adam. <clears throat> okay, Ryan asks, what is the weirdest guitar pedal you have reviewed or, or seen? I've done a lot of weird ones, and there are a lot of them are very weird in their own unique ways. I would say the one that always comes to mind is one that doesn't necessarily make a sound. I'll go grab it. <laughs> it doesn't make a weird sound. It's just like a fuzz pedal. So... It's not uh, the fact that it makes a weird noise. It's the fact that it's a turd fuzz. And this thing actually sounds great if you're willing to put this on your pedal board. So I got to go with the turd fuzz by Dr. Now. That is incredible. This fly, his eyes light up when it's turned on too. And the thing is, it's also just like the best sounding fuzz pedal I have. <laughs> Can you imagine going to a gig and this is on your pedal board? It's that, that was the perfect answer. I'm so glad Brian asked that. Um, and then Bilal, Bilal asks, uh, what was the most challenging part of your musical journey and how did you deal with it? Okay. I think the most challenging part was probably the realization that I'm never going to be the guitar player that I always wanted to be, I guess. And realizing that, um, I was never going to be as good as I wanted to be. I'll never be as good as I want to be. Maybe I think that's what it is. Uh, because every step of the way, that thing that I wanted to become has always moved as I've gotten better. It wasn't like, here's the goalpost or here's the finish line. Okay, I can do this. I can do this. I can do this. I got to that point. I'm the guitar player I always wanted to be. It was like, as I got closer to that thing, it also moved away it became redefined every step of the way. Uh, and I think a, a big thing was like just going to music school and no longer being the best guitar player I knew, um, not even being close to the best guitar player in my, my class alone. Like when I was there, I would say like I fit really, I was at, at a good place. I was like right in the middle, uh, was able to learn a lot from the guys who were better, but I was also not struggling to keep up. It was like, I was like right in the middle. But when you grow up and you're, close circle of friends, like you're by far the best guitar player out of all of them. It's a very tough realization when you don't have that thing to stroke your ego anymore. And so I think the way that I dealt with that was, uh, this was like in my third, fourth year of music school. Um, I was like, you know what? I'm not gonna try to be the best guitar player in the world anymore. I'm just gonna try to do something that only I can do. And that's where I started not practicing things that school was telling me to practice. At that point, it was like jazz, jazz, jazz. Go learn uh, West Montgomery stuff. Go learn Sonny Rollins licks. Do all this. And I was like, you know what? I'm not going to do that anymore. I'm just going to learn the things that I want to learn. Not because you told me to learn it, just because I want to go back to just having fun with this and doing only things that I like. And I just kind of decided that I'm not going to be the fastest guitar player. I'm not going to know the most about uh, I'm not going to be the best improviser in the world ever, but I am going to try to do what I do best. And now my focus is to figure out what that is and try to be that. And so I think re or fast forward to like where I am now. And there's like guitar players I watch on Instagram. And I'm, I'm like, I'll never be able to do that. But when I record something, it's like, yeah, that's me. That's my thing. And it sounds like me. And I don't think it sounds like a lot of other people. And that's what 
that's how I got over that thing. It was just try to be not the best guitar player ever, but just the most, the truest guitar player to me. How's that for a, for a nice sentiment? Was that a conscious conversation with yourself? I think it evolved over a while. Like, so the first three years when I did my degree, it was all about practicing jazz music. Jazz, 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 listen to jazz, practice jazz, play jazz. And I, I, that was never where my heart ever lied. Like I was never, I never grew up listening to that music. Uh, I did develop a love for it through that. And I really bought into the system. Um, but because of that, like there were guys who I went to school with who were like prodigies, guys who were winning, who like had full scholarships to go to school, who had been raised by jazz musicians, had been playing jazz since they could walk. Uh, and at first, that conflicted with my view of, hey, uh, like we talked about earlier, I could be the best jazz guitar player in the world if I practice hard. That really conflicted with that. And so I think it was like a slow realization that I'm never going to be able to get to their level no matter how hard I work, but also deciding that I don't really want to do that. It doesn't, I imagine myself being able to play that at that level. And I'm like, That's, that doesn't ring true to me or what I want to do. So what, what can I do that? Yeah, it, it was, a, I think, a conversation that I had with myself. And for a while, like, I kind of stopped playing a lot of guitar and just wrote songs. That's all I did because I felt like I could be, I think I was maybe a bit too hard on myself. And I was like, I could never be a world-class guitar player. I'll never get to that level. But I think I could be a world-class writer. And so I just wrote songs for a while before I kind of got back into playing guitar for myself and developing that thing. But I think it was the process of like getting so much enjoyment of writing and doing something that's, I'm not trying to sound like anyone else. I'm just trying to write good songs that come from the heart. Um, and then I try to do that now when I play guitar. I'm not trying to say, all right, I want to play like a, a, a Joe Satriani style thing. It's no, like I'm never going to be able to play that fast. I just want to play things that I think sound good. And just always, always reminding myself, like that's the goal when I sit down with my instrument, just play something that means something to me. And there will be people who will say, oh yeah, samurai guitarist, he's not even close to as good as this person or this person or this person. And probably from a certain level, it's true. But my favorite guitar players are not the ones that are the fastest or most proficient. They're the ones that just sound like you hear them and you're like, yeah, that's, that's, um, that's John Schofield. Or you hear them and you're like, yeah, that's Stevie Ray Vaughan. Or like that kind of thing where they're just purely unique and individual and so I just I try to just do that and that makes me happy when I play more than trying to play something that someone else played that's it's such a valuable lesson to learn as an artist and it's the it's the hardest thing when you are at a music school and I was again with prodigies um albeit classical music, I very quickly realized I am definitely not cut out to be the best viola player or, you know, try and fight for a place at music school or anything. I just, I really learned to let that go. And I think luckily I had that to help with songwriting. And when people, and, and it was a, it was a tough thing to realize when I entered the guitar YouTube space, um, because we get compared to literally the world's best. So the, the, the guys who really are, guys and girls, who, who really are some of the world's best players, 
because we might be on the same platform as them, they have a public persona, we have a public persona, you immediately get put side by side for them when actually you're on a different path. And um, I I really struggled with that when I first went on Anderton's, say, because so, I was suddenly next to Pete and Ore. And I, one, I'm uh, 10 years or, or so younger. Um, also, I wasn't ever a pure guitarist. Um, Pete does what Pete does because he's Pete. I need to do what I can do with my skill set. And I think that's the best thing about YouTube. It's like, I'm not just a musician. I have to make videos. I have to be sort of um, business minded behind all of it. I have to know how to build a website. I have to know how to do artwork. I know how to distribute my music. I have to know how to make an Instagram post. We have to learn so many other things that make up us. Um, and I think that is what keeps me interested as well. And I think I apply that now to guitar where it's like, I want to play fingerstyle. Like everyone, everyone, you know, when, when I first came about and I was sort of maybe falling into bad habits where I was using quite a percussive style all the time, I looked like a one trick pony, but I am a one trick pony because there's only so much I can learn how to do when my time is divided. Um, so it's kind of like, learn to go all in on the thing that you are obsessed with, with guitar, because that will be the easiest thing for you to remain um, uh, inspired by. And and therefore you'll end up making you sound like you as opposed to you sounding like Stevie Ray Vaughan or, you know, and, and the best way to do that, I think, is with song and writing songs and figuring out how to communicate your ideas on guitar and learning that being able to shred uh, although it might be sexy for a minute on Instagram it's not musical at all and it's not a melody it's just a party trick so um, I, I completely agree with you. I think um, it also you got to define like what you want to do if you want to be a session guitar player who's like the, the Pete Thorne type guys then you do need to then you're going to have a very different route than someone like like us who maybe went, um, and I say an artistic route, but I don't mean that in any way is condescending to what he does. When I say artistic, I mean, it's like you're trying to serve yourself as an artist first and foremost, and not focusing on like your work being something to back up someone else else's artistic vision. Um, so if you do want to be a session guitar player, then yeah, you do need to to try to be able to sound like everyone else. And you're going to have a very different path than you or I would have. Um, I think it's also important to have that realization at the right time, depending on, again, on what you want to do. Like if I, by the time I had that realization that I just want to be me now and do what I want to do, I had built a huge wealth of skills trying to sound like other people. And so all that time that I spent trying to sound like my favorite guitar players and practicing jazz and trying to, to do what those other prodigies in my music school were doing, that led to the point where I could say, I don't want to do that. And now I have the skill set required to make this thing that is whatever my artistic vision is going forward. Whereas if I kind of just said when I first picked up guitar that I just want to be an artist and, and I don't want to put the time in practicing being like everyone else, I don't 
think that would have turned out all that well. So it's it's a lot of balance and you gotta figure out the right time to have that, that realization and it's different for everyone. I'm glad it happened to me when it did and I have friends that I went to school with who had that realization at the beginning of of their music degrees and they went on paths that led them to really great places and then I know people who had that kind of realization early on and it just puttered out and they went and worked a job that was completely separate from music. It's not a perfect answer for everyone, right? And also one of the things you said earlier that uh, we're compared to the best musicians. I mean, I think that people like you, people like me, people like Adam, people like Paul, compared to the best musicians in the sense that John Mayer, nobody can do John Mayer as well as John Mayer does John Mayer. He is the best at being himself that he could possibly be. And so it ties into that theory. Like I'm just trying to be the best at me that I could possibly be and nobody can do that better. And once you have kind of got that thing, I don't think one is necessarily better than the other. John Mayer at his best is, is just a different flavor than me at my best or you at your best or someone else at their best. Uh, and you want to have that base level of skill so that you can be on that level where you can express yourself. But I've said it before on my YouTube channel, like I don't think that Pat Metheny, who I consider like one of the most proficient and amazing guitar players of all time, I don't think he's intrinsically better than Neil Young, who like, if you listen to his electric guitar playing, it's pretty sloppy. They're just a different flavor and they're both masters of their craft. And when you get to that level where you're a master of your craft, it's just one is not necessarily better than the other. It's just different. This is the way I see it. I, I couldn't agree more. But you got to do the work to get to the point where you can be a master. Whatever that work looks like, I don't know. Okay, so I have, I have some uh, questions that I'm asking everybody. Um, which album or artist have you recommended to your friends and family the most? Dang, that's a tough one. I'll do recently um, because I can't even remember which ones it would have been in the past. But lately, I'm digging a guy. Uh, his artist name is Tycho. And he makes like, it's just music that I really find myself gravitating towards now. Like I don't listen to a ton of music now, but I really like listening to his music. It's like electronic-y, chilly, vapor-wavy kind of stuff, but the guitar is often the main line throughout the whole thing. And it's just like, it's a really cool vibe that I'm into. So I, he's the guy that I've been recommending and really, really enjoying lately. All right. I'm, I'm going to check him out. Because um, I think, I feel like I'm aware of the name, but I don't think I've listened to his music. Cool. This is just, like, these these questions are so selfish. It's me learning. Um, if you could have a drink with any musician, dead or alive, who would it be and what would you ask them? The initial thing is, like, Jimi Hendrix. Would I would just want to, like, sit there with him and, like, I don't even... I would just, like, want to kind of get asked me, how's it going and see what happened after that. How's it going, man? And like, just like see where it goes. Like, I don't have a specific question for, for a guy like that. I would just be, I want to see what he is like, because he is like so mythicized amongst guitar players. And it would just, I'm like, I'm a huge, huge fan too. Um, I think that would be probably the one. That's probably the best. That's a, that's a good answer because. I've definitely found from conducting interviews, the best way to learn about someone is to literally just have a conversation with them. 
So the hi, how it, how's it going to Jimi Hendrix? Yeah. Or J- John Frusciante would be the other one too, I think. Cause he's also like, just like, yeah, how's it going, man? And just like, see where that conversation leads. Like, I don't have one specific question. Hey, what'd you do? And what guitar did you use on uh, this recording? No, I don't care about that. I just want to. What string gauge do you use? <laughs> yeah. Like there's enough interviews with all these guys that you can kind of figure out a lot of those things. But I want the answer to the question that, um, like, what is this person really like? Who is this person? You know what I'm saying? Like, I don't really want to have, I want to have a conver- I want to get to know the person as a person, not as a, that thing that they have put in the world and the rest of the world could see. I would just want to have a podcast with, with John Vershanti or Jimi Hendrix and just like, see how it goes. I have found, uh, learning to interview people, the best way to get the most out of them is just to have themes, like have certain subjects that you definitely want to get to. Like I've got, um, I've been way more prepared with these podcasts than I've ever been with interviews before, but I have, I have so many themes that I want to touch upon, but it doesn't matter if I don't get to all of them because I know that I'm still going to have, end up having a conversation for, we're currently at an hour and a half. Yeah, Um, this could easily go for like three more hours. it, It definitely could. And learning that art to get the most out of someone it doesn't come from prepared questions that's why i'm saving them till the end because it's you don't want Jimi hendrix to turn around to you and go um yes or no to that kind of question you want to get a story out of him and if if i don't want him to go into like press mode no (laughs) no you do not want to go no press press mode is repressed and it's not it's not natural um and and that's the best thing I think about YouTube, and it's why I started Tuesday Talks, of which this will be a Tuesday Talks episode. I'm bringing it back. Um, I just I realized I was like I just want to have conversations where it doesn't feel stunted and it doesn't feel unnatural, like so many conversations with musicians and press are. Um, and it is you know even on in in some podcasts are still quite like uh stagnated but the best ones are when you know they just ask questions like just like you would in normal life it's just it's all getting it's all just getting very realistic and i think it's getting way more natural and that's why you know three-hour podcasts are are a thing damn i want to get i want to get Jimi hendrix on the podcast (laughs) maybe tough might have to like get a ouija board or something that would be an interesting video, trying to resurrect dead musicians. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that would have to be a sketch more than an actual trial, I think. One of my greatest pranks I've ever played, and I'm not a prankster, I don't do a lot of pranks. Uh, I was in college, and the way the dorms were set up was like you had like a communal area in the middle, walk in the door here, communal area in the middle, we're doing like a bird's eye view, and then the two bedrooms were like up here, so there was room here, room here. Um, and so my first year when I was there, um, my my roommate who was like in the bedroom that was attached to our little communal area, super cool guy, um, very much a different type of person than I am. He was like, I think in like PR communications, he was very um, energetic, bright-eyed, kind of keener type. Um, and so him and a couple of his friends got a Ouija board. And like, they're the kind of people, like I'm naturally very skeptical about that stuff. I don't believe that, I think it's a piece of paper. I don't put any stock into them. Um, But anyway, 
he was like the kind of guy who's like, oh my God, we're going to talk to some ghosts today. Like that kind of type. And so my buddy Dean was over and we were just like hanging out in my room. Um, and so I was like, okay, Dean, we're going to pull a prank. I'm going to tell Victor that I'm going out to go get dinner or whatever while him and his buddies play the Ouija board. I'm going to shut the door. And then what you're going to do is you're going to stick a broom out the window and you're just going to tap on the window, like from my window, you're going to hang the broom out and tap on his window as they're playing the Ouija board. He's going to think that there's nobody in my room and you're going to like make him think that there's a ghost going on. And so Dean, he was, he was great at this because like I came back and Victor's kind of like freaking out. He's like, we talked to the dead. I think he's like, <laughs> Steve, are you, are you messing with me? What's going on? Is there someone in your room or something? And like knowing full well that Dean was in there. And I'm like, no, what are you talking about, Victor? Uh, and so I figured as soon as I would open the door, Dean would be there and Victor would be like, oh, you got me. But Dean went into my closet and like hid in my laundry basket. And so we went into the room and there was no one in there. I'm like, look, Victor, there's no one here. And he was like, oh. And so eventually Dean jumped out of the closet and, and we said, haha, got you. But that was, uh, that's my Ouija board story. That's a brilliant I, I, I am too, I'm such a scaredy cat, um, that I don't ever want to commit to saying that something isn't real. <laughs> so I'm like, I'm, I'm sort of like the safe option where, I'm, where people are like, oh, do you think ghosts exist? I'm like, probably just cause I just don't want to be caught out. Like if they do, then I, I, I kind of don't want to, uh, back myself into a corner and like, I don't know, maybe... <laughs> That's such a weak thing to admit to, but I'm just like, yeah, maybe, probably is. So my whole thing is like, my mentality has always been like, I don't believe in something unless there's like a reason to believe it. Uh, and like, there's a lot of like my roots principles that kind of come back to this idea. Uh, if it doesn't, the, the, the burden of truth is on someone to prove that it exists, or I just kind of assume it doesn't exist. But I've always figured if there are ghosts, uh, or, or whatever, and they find me and saying, ah, you guys don't exist. I don't think they would care. I mean, if they're ghosts with like a moral compass, I don't know what kind of ghosts we're talking here. They would just see like, I live a good life. They're not going to be like, if I say they don't exist, I don't think that they're going to care that much. There's a bit, there's better people to haunt than, than myself. That is true. However, I, I take the opposite approach where I'm just like, you'd have to, I just assume I don't know enough to be able to make a decision on anything as to whether or not it exists. Um, okay. So tell me about your favorite piece of, it doesn't actually have to be music gear, but piece of tech and the story behind it. I don't really like tech that much. I guess my favorite piece of tech, cause like I'm so surrounded by gear and tech and all that kind of stuff. Like I, I like things that maybe feel a little, to me, a lot of tech stuff makes me feel detached from reality a little bit. It makes me feel like I'm escaping into a screen or a technology. So like, I don't know if a guitar counts as technology, but like that's, when I pick up a guitar, I feel more connected with the thing. Whereas like when I go and start playing on my phone, it doesn't do that. Yeah, no, I agree. I think and, and a guitar is definitely a piece of tech. Okay, so it would be like my Telecaster, as far as like technology or gear goes, my Tele's my number one. It's just like got such a long, I've got such a long history with it. If, if this place burns down, I always tell Jenny, number one thing, if you can, get that guitar out. 
You can leave all the other ones, but get my Telecaster out. Yeah, I mean, I, that was like my first guitar that I bought when I was 15 years old and I saved up refing hockey for a year to buy it and I ordered it in and it took like five months to come in. And it was like the first time like I ever like really worked towards a thing like that. And it's just been like the one that's all, I've always gravitated back towards because of that. And then like the other stuff, I don't know, like I got, I don't have any emotional attachment to my camera. I've got no emotional attachment to my guitar pedals. I got no emotional attachment to my, my Nintendo Switch. If it broke, I would just get a new one. But like, I think the only thing, probably one of the only things that is not like, like the only inanimate object that I feel like an emotional attachment to is that guitar, I think. That's the perfect answer. I think, you know, we are in a luxurious position where we do have access to gear that not everyone else has access to. And yet the thing that is staring us and most people in the face when it comes to acquiring new gear and thinking it's going to make you a better player. It's like, it's probably the, it's probably the guitar you already have. That's probably the guitar for you. Like I definitely have it with my GV rock by Vigier. It's, it's not that it's the, like, I think it's one of the best guitars out there in terms of modern guitars, but it doesn't, it doesn't matter. I know that it's not going to play that way to someone else. If I put it in someone else's hands, I know that they're not going to have an emotional attachment to it. Like I do, because it was a, it was a, a conscious choice to move to that guitar from going from acoustics, um, and to, change up my whole music scene and and go back to the music that I actually wanted to originally make and that was rock music and I knew that that guitar would make me stand out um as an original artist and also I had to pay for it so I had to earn that money and I was working in a job that paid um about six pounds fifty an hour which is less than ten dollars um so and you know it took me a very very long time uh to save up for it and now it's like my most consistent thing because it's comfortable and because I have, you know, it's got chinks in its armor almost because I've bashed it about because I'm not precious with it. Um, but I love it and it would be the thing that I would save too. Um, and it's, it's, yeah, I think that's really, really important to remember when, you know, so many people are out there flashing expensive gear, um, that really you probably already own the thing that you're going to, you know, you're always going to see the benefit of that first thing. It's, it's never, you're never going to be able to replace the first guitar that you really, really fully connected with. Yeah. I mean, I think like a lot of the biggest musical moments or just like moments in my life. And like, that was the guitar I had in my hands. And I would suspect that's like similar for you with your, the, uh, that baby blue teal one. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And you know, you have to learn to be comfortable with something as well. And actually even learning to write songs, <clears throat> learning to write songs on an instrument and being inspired by an instrument takes a long time for me too. So, um, yeah, couldn't, couldn't agree more. Okay. Final question. Final countdown. Um, <laughs> if you could give your younger self a word of musical advice, what would it be? Um, I think if this is one that I've thought about, so I actually have an answer for this one. I think I would just like, it's not so much musical advice more like life advice would be just like, it's going to work out, man. Cause I always 
told myself it will. And there was always that thing that was like, okay, we're going to do this. I'm going to find a way to get to the, to where I want to get. But there's always that little bit of doubt that was like, maybe this just doesn't work out. Maybe I'm putting all this effort into something that's going to lead me to a place where I don't want to be. But I think if I look at the darkest or lowest points I had musically, and there have been a couple of those along the way where like I was ready just to go do something else. There's a couple of times where like, to the point where like I was looking to see if my, um, my music school credits could be applied to getting into law school. Like I was calling the university in Winnipeg to, to go down that route. Like I was ready basically to do it. Um, but I think it would have just been if me from the future right now could go back and tell me from the past, it's going to be okay. S- stick with it. You'll figure it out. And moments where I saw friends succeeding and I was having like a lot of not positive emotions about that, seeing them succeed. And that thing that I wanted so bad was being achieved by people who were in like, had put no more effort into it than I had when they were getting what I wanted so deeply, like a deep sense of jealousy was like, was brewing there. And it was something where I just would push it down and say, don't act on this. Don't do anything with this. But if me from the future just could have reminded me it's going to be okay, stay on this path. I think I would have had a lot more happiness for seeing other people succeed in the past. Whereas like now when I see my friends succeed, it brings me a lot of happiness because I've also got what I wanted, but I wish I could have had that same emotion about their success in the past. And I don't feel overly guilty about it because I, I believe that you should never feel bad about the, about how you feel. It's what you do with your emotions that defines the character of a person. If you feel jealous, if you feel disgusted by something, it's okay to feel things because for the most part, you don't control your emotions. It's what you do with those emotions. And I never let those things come out on the surface, but I wish I could have enjoyed their success in the way that I would have now. And I think that being able to tell myself along the way, reminding myself it's going to be okay, would have smoothed out a lot of those, those, those dark times, whatever they happen to be. Seeing other people succeed and not having that myself, being put off by music, being feeling like it wasn't going anywhere, I feel like it would have smoothed out a lot of those things so that the ride would have been a bit more enjoyable throughout. That's an incredible answer and something I really, really resonate with because uh, in July I will be hitting my 30th and... Woohoo, welcome to the 30s. I know, I'm, ex- I'm excited. I'm, I, and I'm only excited because I'm in a place I didn't picture myself ever being. Um, and I dealt with... Um, envy and you know I was green with envy towards fellow musicians who were I didn't think were any better than me um and that's the hardest thing to realize is like it doesn't matter whether or not they're better than you they did something different to you and they're on a different path and their success does not hinder yours them having success does not it doesn't have any effect on you and they can't help you there's only so much help they can give. Um, and they're in a vulnerable position in their own. And I wish I knew that now because I would have saved again, I would have saved myself some time. Um, and just, yeah, I, I was going to quit at 30. I, if I, if I was still earning, um, no money a year <clears throat> and not able to make the music I wanted to make, I, I was, I had a deadline. I had a deadline at 30 and now luckily, you know, I don't have to think about it. I remember when I filed my taxes for the first time and it was just like, wow, I did it. Like that was the marker of success for me. 
filing taxes and like actually having to pay tax on the income I made as a musician. I remember, I mean, I can relate to that so, so strongly. And I think it's like you said, the world, there's not a finite amount of success that's available in the universe. And if they get five of it, there's only five left. It doesn't work like that. One of the things that I, uh, I, I did was just like use, try to get something positive out, out of those negative emotions. So I've told this story before and hang on, I've just got to send a quick message here. Um, I've told this story before, but, and I've told this to my friend who, who I felt weird, weird feelings towards. Like, um, I was, when I was in school, I had, uh, another roommate and he was like my best friend through school, still very close with him. And we were in all the same classes. Like we bonded day one. We just like hit it off and we started playing the same bands together and we were roommates for a while. And like, just like my closest friend throughout music school. And then he dropped out after, uh, a, uh three years there and he joined this other band. Um, and there was like some talks that I might go and audition for this band at some point too, because he was always trying to extend the olive branch to his friends and try to get us involved in groups. I never ended up auditioning for them. Um, and he sent me a message one day over the summer. He was like, hey, yeah. So we're doing this, the guy who runs this band is doing this YouTube thing. And he's like, got like 50,000, 35,000 subscribers and like people in like Israel are watching his videos and, or, or, or sorry, the band's videos. And he's like, I just joined up with these guys. They seem like they got a cool thing going. So fast forward six months and they have a massively viral video, 200 million views, five people playing one guitar. Okay. It's a video that got them. This is my buddy. Uh, they were playing gigs at the YMCA. One of my bands played gigs with them every now and then. And, uh, like, this is like my, totally my, uh, I, I view, uh, like Joel at the time. He's like my equal, like we were in it together in a lot of, of, of ways. Uh, and suddenly, I went from, it went from being me uh, in music school, just like, like everyone else. And he went from being right there with me to now he's playing on Ellen. Uh, they're being flown out to New York. They are now playing sold out shows at the Mercury Lounge. Um, they are being courted by like Universal and Warner Brothers and Columbia. I think they ended up signing with Columbia. And all because of this one viral video that they had where the five people in the band played one guitar. And my outward reaction to this was like very supporting. I tried to be as positive as I could. Uh, and inside, like it was a very conflicted thing. It was like, part of me is happy for my friends seeing this. But the other part of me was like, I want that so bad. And I'm so jealous that I'm not getting that with him. Now, when I look back, like them having their success on YouTube and seeing firsthand what YouTube can do for you was a huge reason why I ended up doing what I'm doing and, and led me to a place where now I'm just, just happy for him. And I just feel nothing but positivity for his, the good things that come in his life. Um, but only because I took that thing that was negative and turned it around to something positive, uh, being like seeing people who were no following whatsoever, develop an entire career out of YouTube. Seeing that happen and feeling the jealousy about it and wanting that for myself is what motivated me to get to the point where I am now. Perfect. Thank you very much for being on this podcast. Thank you for having me, Mary. It's always <laughs> an absolute pleasure. 
Wow, nearly two hours with Steve. He's an excellent human being and I've learned so much from him. I hope you enjoyed it and please subscribe to his channel. Now for information on the sponsor of this entire series. More than 250,000 people rely on DistroKid to distribute their music, including myself. If you're wanting to have your music available on Spotify, iTunes, Apple Music and Tidal, amongst many more stores, then you should sign up using the link in the description. An account starts at just $19.99 for unlimited songs and albums in 12 months. And with the link in the description, you'll get 7% off your first year. So automatic revenue splits automatically route any percentage of earnings from any track to anyone. Add your collaborators, producers, bandmates, managers and more. They'll pay them directly so you don't have to think about it. It's free for all DistroKid members, zero commission. You can edit teams and percentages anytime. It's easy setup so you can focus on making music and leave the accounting to them. If you add non-DistroKid members to a team, that's fine. A 50% discount coupon will be instantly emailed to them. Massive thanks to DistroKid for making this series possible and check out the link in the description for that 7%. But otherwise, I'll see you next week.